Doctors know that prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. The same is true of health plan decisions, but once you get hold of a plan's data, what do you need to know to make the correct diagnosis, and then what do you prescribe? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement designed specifically for educational institutions. If you have clients in that vertical, you know the healthcare deck has been stacked against them. Today, Captivated Health offers the stability, control, and savings they've been waiting for. For more information, go to www.captivatedhealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. We've discussed on the podcast a number of times that there's more and more interest in self-funding. A lot of companies, along with that self-funding, are getting access to data, and that's a great thing. The question is, how do you analyze that data? How do you make it actionable? What are the pitfalls? What can that data do? What can't it do? And how do you figure all that out? And for answers to those and probably some other questions, we've invited Ross Biella, CEO of Aletheus, to join us on the Shift Shapers podcast. Welcome, Ross. Thank you, David. So as, as we discussed off air, access to data is very different than understanding and using the data. Can you paint that picture for us? Oh, certainly. When we're accessing data, it depends on the format in which it comes and the degree of certainty that we have about the data that's provided. And especially in healthcare, it's garbage in and garbage out. So we have to be very careful when we're onboarding that we're getting the information we need. And our big challenges with data sets is that uh, they come in so many different formats. So if we have to do corrections on the back end, that the corrections on the back end from receiving the data don't affect the algorithms when we're trying to get the output. So there's so many challenges with healthcare data because anyone who works with it knows that it is very dirty and sometimes it just doesn't make much sense. And so cleaning the data and making it usable sometimes makes it too clean that you don't get the information that you're really looking for on the back end. So we haven't quite figured out everything on how to make it perfect coming in, but the better we do on the front end, the better it is on the, on the backside. Well, and one of the things that you and I chatted about was this notion of, okay, if you, if you have the right employer, you can partially self-fund a, a smaller group than we used to think of as the standard for self-funded groups. And yet, if you've got just 50 employees, how statistically significant is that data? I mean, you can only draw conclusions so far, right? Oh, absolutely. I think it gets very, very hard to do other things. I guess it gets very, very hard to do things that are statistically significant using small data sets. And the reality around healthcare, especially for a 50 life group, is that you have, you know, 1% of the population is going to drive 50% plus of the costs. 
especially on these 50 life groups where you have one bad experience that's going to more than than make up for everyone else and so seven years ago when we started this it was easy to reference the 80 20 rule where 20 percent of the people would drive 80 percent of the costs and right now we've got most of our groups are at five percent of the people driving 60 to 70 percent of the costs and what that means is that that 50 life group is just waiting for the time bomb to go off. And there's really nothing that we can do from an analytic standpoint to assess the risk of what's going to happen in any given, you know, following year. We can do some predictive analytics around what the likelihood of that incident is going to be. But whether it's in the next year or within three years, that's where, you know, that's hand grenades, you know, that's not horseshoes. So, You really have to be careful on small data sets communicating what that is because from the receiving side of that information, the people will hear what they want to hear. And if for some reason that you or the consultant suggests that you're likely to have a good plan your next year, anything less than 250 people, the risk goes up so high that I would be very, very cautious about making any statement like that. And honestly, the people you're talking to really don't understand the correlation of some of these data points and what the risk really would equate to be. And that said, though, there there are some strategies that these smaller groups can employ, even if it's just 10,000 foot looks and directional. Absolutely. And this is where we come in and the educated consultant comes in because what you're doing is you're you're now playing a game that is, is much more like chess versus a game that's more like football where you can brute force things through. And when you have large populations, there's a lot of things that you can brute force through or will just naturally come together because of the laws of large numbers. On smaller numbers, it's a much more acute targeting of very specific things that you can control, realizing that there are only certain things that you can control. And that's the other part of that communication is that you will never be able to control trauma. You will never be able to control those unexpected cancers, such as a brain cancer. So let's just give up on controlling that and let's focus on those things that make a difference to the employee. And our smallest group that is self-funded has 18 employees and our largest group has about 4,000 employees and 10,000 total lives. So we, you know, run the gamut in terms of the analytic profiles that we can, can process with the data sets that we have. And what we found is that with these smaller groups, and I'll say a smaller group is any, anyone under that 250, is that the value of the analytics is really dependent upon their local market and what those procedures are, are driving their costs dependent on, on the type of workforce that they have. And if I've got a workforce of young engineers, it's a very different model than if I have a workforce of uh, machinists who've, who are between 50 and 60 men who have been smoking half their life. And all of that really makes a difference. And you have to explain that to the end user of that data. 
and that there are certain things with the second group that I referenced, the older, more mature male work group who typically doesn't go to the doctor very often, hasn't done their screenings. What can you reasonably expect to do based on the types of activities that you want them to do? The other thing about that is, is what is their receptivity to the direction that you give them? So cultures in the organization make a difference relative to the data that, that is going to come out on the other side. So I can have two groups of, of 100 employees. One of them follows their CEO and will do whatever they say. They don't need additional incentives. They will adhere to the company criteria for activities, whatever. They're just a great, great, easy to manage group. Another group may just be at odds with the uh, leadership and do the opposite of what's told. But there's no way that I can look at the data and know that unless I've had a few conversations with the HR manager or the C-suite to understand what's happening in that group. So you have to have correction for that. And some of the things around that, David, which I think you'll find fascinating, is that we're moving away from demographic profiling on those groups and adding in psychographic profiling to see what is going to change their behavior. And as we get into things like social determinants of health or the risk correlation to where they live, all of that comes into play when we're trying to get the output on the other end. Psychographic profiling, though, takes a little bit longer to develop than just looking at claims that are dumped on a desk. There are instruments that you can use that will give you good general guidelines around what psychographic influences make a difference in terms of changing someone's behavior. In fact, one of the groups we work with has an 11-question survey that will give you a very good indicator of where they fit in the typical five buckets of people making these decisions. Do you then, in these smaller groups, do you then tend to focus on specific conditions? Absolutely. I think we have to look at the conditions that they're more likely to have based on their work profile and and their really initially the demographic profile of the organization. So whether it's looking at managing childbirth costs versus managing orthopedic costs for our, our group of welders, for example. So let's talk for a moment or two about the 800-pound gorilla that's in most employers' claims, and that's the pharmacy costs that are just going crazy and have been going crazy for a number of years, seem to be almost a hockey stick profile in terms of how they're driving costs. What can you discern from the data? Do you have to do it differently than you do it for med surge claims? And and where what does that inform you and how can you make decisions? What do you do going forward on that? Well, that's a great question because what's happening in pharmaceuticals, and as you know, I spent the majority of my career in pharmaceuticals as a brand manager for a large pharmaceutical company. And since all the low-hanging fruit in terms of anti-infectives and antihypertensive and and lipid-controlling products, that's all been taken now. So the pharma companies are now going after orphan drugs or biologics, and all of those drugs are very, very expensive. And so back in 2000, when there was probably five or six biologics that uh, plants had to navigate around. So right now, there are approximately 100 or so biologics or very expensive drugs, drugs like that on the market, but there's about 300 in development. And so what that means is that the likelihood of a small employer having one of their members on a more expensive drug or very expensive drug is much, much greater than it was just 10 years ago. 
And so people haven't thought about that. What is What do we have to do with the plan design to accommodate that? And what happens to us if we have a member on that type of a product? And I don't think people know how fast that's coming. And that's my fear is that we've been able to ignore it because the risk wasn't there. But now and within the next five years, that risk is going to be incredibly high. So the, con- the real smart consultants are planning for that now, knowing that something is going to happen. And now a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single source solution for your clients and prospects who are in the education vertical. The founders of Captivated Health have nearly 20 years' experience working with educational institutions, and over that time, they've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems these clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing healthcare costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace until now. Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems, and it does so with virtually no disruption to faculty and staff while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to the educational clients you advise. To learn more about the Captivated Health solution, go to their website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on their logo on the Shift Shapers website. And now, back to our interview. Well, and the other side of the problem, of course, that's, that's almost impossible to prepare for, besides the number of fills on these biologics, is the fact that drugs will use Embryl as an example. Embryl used to be, a month's supply of Embryl used to be $1,400, $1,500, and these days it's, it's closing in on $4,000. That when we look at the, you know, back at the good old days when it was just $1,400. Just for a mere 14, a pocket change, right? <laughs> right. Do you remember when it, when it came out and it was 1400 and we were all somewhat appalled that it was that expensive? Yeah, it was, it was gasp inducing. I was running a TPA back at the time and I saw some of those claims and went right, right through the ceiling. And I thought, surely it, it, it's an error. I mean, they added an extra zero. That, that must be what it is. I don't think anybody ever predicted that it was going to get to the kind of money it is today, and that and that's not isolated. No, and and I'll guarantee you that we will look at that four thousand dollars today as a value when we look at some of the other drugs that are coming out at ten thousand a month, or fifty thousand dollars a month, or a hundred thousand dollars a month. Well, and and the argument that's made is that while it's true that these are expensive up front, they save on treatment costs down the road. But of course, we have such a short runway on that, that there's no real predictability or proof of either of those two statements, is there? I haven't found it. I know that on the pharmaceutical side, that's their job to do. And in order for coverage through the PBM or a health plan, they really have to prove that. And I think many of them can, depending on what they're treating. The challenge is, Regardless of whether they can or they can't, it's going to be expensive. And that's the part that I think the employers just need to control. And whether it, I think that's the, the, real, the real question is, let's say that that drug costs $50,000 a month and that there is some methodology to show that that is going to save, save a certain you know, amount of money. Now, if that person who's on that $50,000 a month drug is 46 years old and they have to take it for life, 
that's a much different equation than someone who's 63 and going off the plan in two years. So I'm not sure how we, we do that. And I understand from the pharmacy side or the pharma company side why they price the drug that way. I don't understand from the employer side how you set up your plan design to control for that. Yeah, it, it, it's got to be a very, very difficult proposition. I know one of the tools that, that you're employing in some situations to deal with claims costs is on-site and near-site clinics. What kind of, that's both a savings thing and I suspect also an employee satisfaction thing and an appreciation thing. Would, would both of those things be true? Yes. What we find is that it's very hard for on-site clinics to truly demonstrate value if they're only looking at comparing the cost of the clinic to the cost of evaluation and management codes that would normally be accrued to the plan based on the engagement of the employees. That's a difficult financial model to prove simply because there generally isn't enough savings there relative to the cost of having that on-site clinic. So let's assume that that clinic can break even. And if the clinic can break even, the soft cost or the soft savings, I'll say, on that side is that you've got an employee population who now has a medical home if they choose to use it. And my clients who are using on-site clinics get the best result when they require their employees to go through all their population health metrics and physicals and collect all that data so that they're not missing anyone. If they make it a, an event where people can opt out, they lose a significant portion or value of that clinic. The other thing that makes them successful are, are my clients who take an active role in ensuring that the clinic is managing the patients and doing outreach to the patients, which is oftentimes an additional cost to the onsite clinic, which they have to charge for, and the employer must be willing to pay. So if the employer wants that provider to be out, you know, wandering the warehouse and observing people, how they're moving and and building those relationships, they have to realize that that they're not going to be in the clinic and seeing patients and therefore not, quote unquote, saving that money in reduction of E&M codes. And I think that's the disconnect where there's a desire from the employers as to what they want the clinic to do. And then the expectation of the clinic is what they're being asked to do. So if we can get that aligned, the value of the clinic on the secondary uh, front is their referral to value. And the challenge that we found is that many of the clinics will alight in a community or in a, at an employer, and then they'll hire a provider from that area. And that provider comes with a referral pattern that they develop from working in that area. It's not referring to value necessarily. It may be referring to whoever they're used to referring to. The other challenge then is if they pull a provider in from outside of the area and they don't have a referral pattern, how do they set up their referral pattern? So unless they use tools like ours that provide the analytics that indicate who the higher value providers are, you're at, at risk for having a very effective onsite clinic, but losing all the value once it leaves your clinic doors. It's a balance. And, and all of this, of course, and advisors deal with this all the time, has become a huge burden on HR departments. And I know you've had some very strange things happen in, in HR areas. We've had, <laughs> it's funny you say that because 
our broker community is doing their best to control the costs. And so I liken it to an employer who's standing at the edge of the pool. And there's three ways that the employer can enter the pool. And the pool is the solution to their medical claims costs. And you've got the broker consultant on the side and and the broker consultant can either lead them into the pool and wade in and let them get comfortable with the water and what have you. The challenge with that is that the savings that results from that methodology are so slow that the employers get frustrated and they look at the broker and say, why aren't you doing enough for me? You know, so then the other option is to have the broker consultant say, okay, well, we're going to do this and effectively shove the employer into the pool. And they may not be ready to get in the pool, but they wanted to be all in. And so there's a big difference between being shoved in the pool and then being die and diving in on their own. So in one instance where the employer really wanted change and change was necessary for the employer to remain viable in the market in which they were in. And ultimately, the consultant did the best job they could in terms of explaining what is going to happen if they take this deep dive into very disruptive change. And the employer nodded their head and said, yep, in this case, the HR manager said, yes, we're, we're ready to go. The consultant shoved them into this value pool, and it was way too much disruption. The employees weren't ready for the disruption, and it resulted in, frankly, the HR manager being burned in effigy on a parade where the employees had made t-shirts denouncing the health plan or the changes in the health plan. It was not a very good experience. And the consultant had to remind the HR manager, as I told you, this could be an option. It was very difficult for them. Now, did they save a ton of money? Absolutely. But at what cost? And I think that's, that's the question. We talk about disruption in healthcare and disruption in healthcare has risks that can be disproportionate to the benefit. Whether it's risk like that, where changing the benefit plan can result in your being burned in effigy, to significant clinical risks where, yes, you can save money, whether it's changing a therapeutic class or something. But the, the risk could be a true medical risk where someone's you know, health is compromised. And so we really have to balance that. And I, I struggle with the word disruption. And I think you had a term for it. What was it? The creative creative dis- destruction, which is Alfred Schumpeter, the economist's actual initial term for it. We've gotten to the to the nicer term, kind of a Clayton Christensen term of creative disruption today. Right. And I, I think the uh, creative disrupt destruction is is probably better because you can destroy a little bit at a time and in, in, instead of disrupting the whole the whole process, because the result of that disruption in in healthcare is very different than the result of the disruption in social media or retailing, where in what instance, I may be able to get the book cheaper, but it's going to cost me somewhere else, or, or I can get access to these free services, but I have to give up all of my personal information. And so yes, there's disruption on one end, but it doesn't, I don't feel any pain. In healthcare, that employee can definitely feel some pain and someone ultimately is going to pay if that disruption is just too great. Well, as we continue to work on this 
perpetual balancing act. We hope you'll come back as things change and and give us some updates. Ross Biella, CEO of Alethius. Ross, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with the audience and for being a shift shaper. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved.